Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. From Luminary, this is Here to Slay, the Black, feminist, almost maybe kind of carbon neutral podcast of your dreams. We're trying, y'all. We're trying. I'm Tressie McMillan-Cottom. And I am Roxanne Gay. I'm Here to Slay. Tressie and I, yeah, we've taken oxygen and exhaled carbon dioxide. And, <laughs> you know, we try to drive our hybrid cars and live with as small a carbon footprint as possible. Because that's what happens when you care about the planet. And it may not seem like it because we spend so much time talking about, well, everything. Uh, But Roxanne and I really care about the planet. (laughs) We are also, however, never short of conversation when it comes to politics that we have to talk about, the culture that we love to talk about. And by culture, y'all, we mean everything from COVID to country music. That's me. From food to fat phobia. That's us. (laughs) From comedy to how our Money stays so funny. And we talk about these things with women, mostly. Black women, usually. Women in arts, politics, the media. Women who are getting shit done every single day. Hey, girl. Hey. Hey, girl. And we need some women to be getting some shit done. Uh, mm-hmm. You and I have talked a lot recently about how we are supposed to live our lives knowing that the planet is melting. Uh, And there's been a lot of melting lately. So the one that got me Mm. is the building collapsing in Miami. Yes. So there's a lot of conversations about, you know, the building may have fallen apart because of poor maintenance and cumulative disrepair, but apparently the ground beneath it was also not stable and there's a lot of that going on, and it's got me a little panicked about how unprepared we are for what climate change is doing to us. Well, what's interesting is that we're not actually unprepared. We're unwilling to face the reality. Mm-hmm. You know, we have all of the tools that we need to deal with climate change or global warming. And, of course, I like to call it global warming because that's what it is. But it's getting really bad. And it's what's really unfortunate is that... Mm-hmm. The fossil fuel industry keeps putting the onus on us to to make changes. And so people walk around talking about how they have zero footprint and they buy carbon offsets and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, we can't actually behave our way out of the problem mm-hmm. until that there is governmental intervention around the world. Mm-hmm. Not eating meat is, you know, good for you. I mean, and I think that's a great Thing but to your do, almond but milk is killing as much of the planet the as your hamburger is. So many of the interventions that we've come up with have just as significant an ecological toll. And I think it is important for us to note that the ecological toll does not ring first for everyone, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Climate disaster has already happened to most of the world's non-white population. Mm -hmm. If you look across the United States, you see the same 
pattern in miniature New Orleans. Uh, Hurricane Katrina was as much, yes, about the failure of the government and the Army Corps of Engineers as it was about the cumulative disinvestment in protecting that city from known and predictable effects of climate change because no one cared because it would disproportionately impact Black people in a Black-dominated state and city. Uh, We see that happening across the country. Listen, I grew up, my family is from Eastern North Carolina. And listen, when I was a little girl, I remember them having protests about environmental racism. Mm -hmm. And what they were talking about is because we were in the eastern part of the state, we had conflicts over water. This is the 1980s, honey. We were talking conflicts over water and water access and water rights, conflicts over clean air and uh, dumping. Uh, Eventually, by the 2000s, they were also part of the pipeline conversation. So what we were supposed to do about natural gas. Those are conversations that have been happening for poor people and people of color for a very long time. As a now solidly, what, middle class, upper middle class person who spends a lot of time with white people, I now know how white people have made being a climate crunchy person, a personality, you know, you got to carry your little, uh, uh, water bottle and you drive your Prius and you put the solar panels on your house. And I'm going, yeah, but like in 1981, we were asking for them to not dump waste into our water reservoirs in Eastern North Carolina. And if your conversation about your water bottle is not connected to our conversation about our tainted water in the poorer parts of this country, uh, then I'm really not interested. So not only to your point, Roxanne, is the behavioral level analysis just, you know, inefficient and inadequate. It is, to my mind, you know, deeply racist. It is. And, you know, I don't want to absolve anyone, especially myself, of personal responsibility and and contributing to the community that we live in, because we are part of a global community. But the Virtue signaling that white people in particular do around the environment by making like loud declarations about sort of, you know, the ways in which they're living off the grid while typing on their Apple product (laughs) where, you know, many of the components were mined by slave labor in Africa. You know, it's like we're all sort of contributing to this hellscape. Mm -hmm. And Part of personal responsibility is being able to acknowledge that and to acknowledge the racialized and class identified ways in which we can buy our way out of climate change or buy our way out of guilt. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're already seeing this, that rich people are building their homes higher off the ground. They are buying homes in places where they won't be affected by climate change. Here in California, they're putting in air filters to cope with the increasingly intense fire season, Mm -hmm. which is just getting started here this year. Whereas some places don't even have working HVAC in California, from what I understand, because the regulation is so all over the place. Yeah. Uh, You know, I really keep wondering, like, what do we do? And I think the question is, how do we move the needle politically, but how do we ensure that Black people, and I would say also, of course, Native Americans and Latinos in this country, mm-hmm. how do we not get left behind with all yep. of this thinking about how we protect ourselves from climate change? Because mm-hmm. right now, the mm-hmm. world is in big trouble. It's um not the future. It's today. No. 
And it is at the stage, I think, Roxanne, where we do have to start to make decisions. Yes. So many of these decisions have been left to be done piecemeal, to happen through mostly through social coercion. I think we are at the point where this has to be a legal, political decision making that you have to do these things whether you want to or not. We're past the point of making those kinds of individual decisions, um, as you mentioned, because one of the things I found out as I'm trying to be a better person and figure out my role in all of this is there are no great individual decisions to be made. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this is one of the things I said on Twitter a few weeks ago. I asked someone, I said, it's about time for me to renew the lease on my car. Uh, and so I wanted to think about what kind of vehicle I would get next. And I said, oh, wait, I don't know where we are. Like, where are we in the, you know, development of like automotive technology? Uh, so I checked in with Twitter as I am wont to do. Uh, and I said, do we do electric now? Are we still on hybrids? What's the thing? It's probably time for me to make the switch. And I am overwhelmed, number one, by the responses, right? But also, they're all over the place. There are the people who are saying, well, electric's not quite there. And then the very next tweet, it would be somebody saying, electric's there. It's time. It's ready. Go full electric. And then somebody would go, well, okay, but you better not try to take a road trip. And then somebody else would say, well, what's electric going to do if it's still on the grid and you got to plug it in? And I thought (laughs) this was like this little microcosm of how difficult it is to figure out even what the right choices are. And the problem there is we've left it up to a consumer choice, right? I'm making this as a person buying a car when I should be making choices amongst decisions that have been whittled down by government agencies, that these are the range of acceptable decisions that will make a positive impact. And that seems to me to be the piece that is missing. Why are we here? Meanwhile, in Las Vegas, even though he's completely not well, Elon Musk's little people mover that he kept talking yeah. about is working. So can we just talk about Elon Musk for a minute? Yeah. What is supposed to be our basic line on this besides the fact that that, that man is touched in the head, as we say, where my people are from? And like, so the everybody that I do know who has gotten an electric vehicle, by the way, they get a Tesla. I mm-hmm. do think that it's so much about race and class. So mm-hmm. even my black folks who are at that point where they're willing to jump on the electric bandwagon only feel comfortable doing it with a Tesla, which I find yes. fascinating. I do too. Um, my brother drives one, my youngest. Really? Mm-hmm. But like, so what are we supposed to buy the Teslas, even though we know he is touched and I think he's trying to destroy the world? You know, I, I, the Tesla is an interesting car. I find them to be not roomy enough for uh-huh. the larger bodied folk. Mm-hmm. Like, he clearly designed a car for the kinds of people he wants to see in that the world. That he hangs out with, exactly. <laughs> I love the Tesla. <laughs> and if it was bigger and roomier, I, I would buy two. But... <laughs> Um, you know, I think that he's completely touched and I think Mm -hmm. he's dangerous and I think that he's like evil. Yeah, he's Uh, out of central casting. He's a Superman villain. He is like the fucking mustache twirling villain you see with the greasy hair. I mean, I also think he is, I, I do think he has some smart ideas and I do think that if he wasn't touched, I do think he could contribute to real change in the world. The thing that really pushed me over the edge was that little nutty thing he's got going on in Vegas. Mm-hmm. He he really said, I'm going to dig some tunnels under the ground and you're going to be able to move very quickly from one spot to another. Mm-hmm. And then there's now three stations and it doesn't go anywhere. It's just three little stations in Vegas around the convention center. But 
with the right resources and cooperation, right. I think this man will build an underground instant travel system and get it See, working. I'm afraid, though, that guy, huh. though, never does it, like you said, doesn't do it for the public good. No. So there's always this tension between the technology and the innovation and yeah. what drives that, which tends to be like really big, wild ideas, mm-hmm. lots of destruction, right? Uh, whether you think it's creative destruction or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that you have to care for, however, the people who are going to get steamrolled by the technological innovation. And my worry about someone like a Tesla is if you let them into the social compact and say, okay, we're going to give this public money and we're going to invest in the ideas that work. He only wants to focus on the ideas that won't work. (laughs) So like he wants to do the little pneumatic tube to shift the people around in Vegas. But like what we need are like fast trains and electric cars. And I'm not sure that you can like rein that guy in. Right. Using politics, because again, he's touched. And he doesn't actually care about the greater good. He cares about the greater glory. Uh-huh. And so what's interesting is that he doesn't realize that you would get all of that glory if you would just build a functional public transportation system around this country and fix the train system. Like, that's <laughs> really all you need to do. You can afford it. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. as long as we keep putting all our hopes and dreams for climate change and resolving it in the hands of these egotistical billionaires, mm-hmm. I mean, black people in particular, we're fucked. Because of how extreme wealth creation and inequality works uh, in the global economy, it is always, always going to save the people who can pay the price of entry. Whether that's buying the home with the solar panels, whether mm-hmm. that's being able to afford the Tesla, whether it's even on a small level, being able to afford the fancy water bottle that will filter the water or the mass that will filter out the smoke. What we're saying is there shouldn't be a price of entry for clean air and clean water and a safe environment because That is the one leveling effect in our society. The climate will eventually come for us all. It's just not going to come for us all at the same time. Um, And so as Black women who take up some space in the public discourse, one of the things that Roxanne and I have been a little dismayed by is that when you have people having these climate conversations, it is too often a bunch of white boys Uh, Mm -hmm. who want to sit around and talk about it at this certain level of either individual choice or like the really complex world of like tax credits and fossil fuels. And it seems to me policy heads. Yes. And that leaves a lot left unsaid. So a few weeks ago, I spoke with Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson uh, solo while my homegirl Roxanne was off dominating the world. Ayana is a marine biologist and she co-edited a book of essays called All We Can Save, Truth, Courage, and Solutions for the Climate Crisis, which is coming out in paperback. She is also the co-host of the podcast, How to Save a Planet, which has actually cracked the code on how to do a podcast on a difficult and complex subject that a lot of people actually don't want to hear about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what she and her co-host do is they insert humor into the situation. They are great storytellers and they don't wallow in despair. They give us the hope that... Mm-hmm. It's not too late. And I frankly think that's what we all need to hear in order to be motivated enough to start addressing global warming. Yeah, that's so critical. The first thing I asked Ayana about is how do we talk about the climate crisis? You know, I'm all about the words we use because mm-hmm. they are so powerful. What words we use to describe what's happening in the world today are really important. There are all these different words, right? Mm -hmm. There was global warming, 
Right. Uh, which sounded like a little more clear as to what was overall the, exactly. the, the direction of things. But my yeah. understanding of it is that there was like a conservative fossil fuel related mm-hmm. like focus group that said global warming was making people more concerned and we should just call it climate change. Instead. Yes. Yes. So like the fact that this is a marketing thing to specifically make us worry less and then therefore do less is certainly not a great rationale for why we should be embracing the term climate change. Right. But on on the other hand, it is more than warming. Okay. Right? It is changes in weather patterns. It is the wildfires and the floods and the droughts and the hurricanes, you know, and the crop failures and the sea level rise and the ice melting. It is all of these things, right? It is mm-hmm. the loss of coral reefs. It is intertwined with our ability to like where and how we can live on this planet. And so it is mm-hmm. more than warming. Right. It is also the acidification of the entire freaking ocean, right? <laughs> like, yes. It is fish yes. moving towards the poles. It is yeah. animals that live on mountains who can't get to anywhere colder because you can't just keep mm-hmm. going up the mountain. It ends at some point. Right. I'm struck by how we really still struggle to talk about it uh, in everyday life You would expect, given the scale of the crisis, for example, that you would see a story about climate Mm -hmm. on the news every night, (laughs) for example. And yet I don't often see that. You're not missing it. They're not there. Okay. And that's part of what your podcast is doing, trying to get people to talk about it. How do you get people to talk about and listen to stories about something that is so horrifically terrifying and that we don't have a public language for? So I think what I do is spend very little time talking about the problem. Mm. We need to understand that the stakes are as high as they could possibly be for the future of life on Earth for our species and every other species, right? Like okay. it's as bad as you think. Mm-hmm. But what, what do we do with that? Just like yes. scare each other with facts about bear yeah. hibernation? Like right. where, yeah. where do we go from there? And so all of my various projects are completely focused on solutions. Mm -hmm. So the podcast, How to Save a Planet, that I co-created and co-host with Alex Bloomberg, that is every episode is about exploring a different climate solution and at the end offering listeners ways they can be a part of it, like a call to action. Mm -hmm. And it's not individual solutions. Which is another big problem. Mm -hmm. And I think so often we get caught up in the... Like, let me obsess over my own carbon footprint. Let me obsess over my own mm-hmm. sort of diet or plastic. It's all this like right. self-reflective, but like ultimately like self-centered work. And that off- mm-hmm. often like ripples into like shaming other people who are not doing what you're doing, which is yeah. not productive if our goal is to build the biggest, strongest team of people working towards solutions, right? So mm-hmm. if I was like the perfect environmentalist and a zero waste creature who managed to emit no carbon over the course of my entire life doing everything that I do, that actually wouldn't matter that much if I – because if I disappear tomorrow, I haven't mm-hmm. changed anything because right. – for everyone else, when they turn on the lights, it still comes from coal or natural gas or whatever. You know, they, they mm-hmm. you can't change that as an individual. You have to be a part of something larger. We need politicians who are like putting forward good climate policy. We need public transit, mm-hmm. not just everyone buying an electric car. So we try to focus on how people can contribute to these systems level changes that are needed instead of just feeling isolated and alone and scared mm-hmm. and overwhelmed. By what is like 
An astronomically large problem. And it is quite overwhelming. Yeah. I recently moved to a community uh, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, that is known in the state as the People's Republic of Carborough is what they call the area. Meaning that sounds nice. It is quite socialist leaning. I know. I think. I think other people when they say it, meaning as meaning as an insult, it was for me part of the draw, <laughs> uh, to be honest. But we have very um, overt conversations mm-hmm. in this community about yes, what we can do, what we should be doing. But I will say. While I was attracted to that when I moved here, I immediately felt overwhelmed by everything I felt like I should have already known. Mm. So it's things like, how should you recycle and what is your recycling responsibility? Oh, man. Recycling is so hard. Right? Recycling is so hard. thank you for saying that. (laughs) I thought, okay, is there a... I was trying to figure out if there was some sort of schedule I should have set up, right? Like, did was I supposed to have uh, contracts with people to come pick it up? What's the responsible way? It is overwhelming. So where are people supposed to start? Well, recycling is a good example, actually, because Mm -hmm. this is another thing where we've just been snookered. So those symbols on the bottom of your plastic Mm -hmm. containers and whatever that have the numbers, the numbers describe the type of plastic that it is. And Uh each municipality or recycling venue will accept different numbers of the plastic based on what there is a market for. Mm-hmm. So some places you can't recycle a yogurt container and some places you can, right? And some mm-hmm. places you can recycle like a filing cabinet and some places they're like, we don't know what to do with this, right? Yeah. And so the differences place by place are a real challenge for people. Mm-hmm. So it's not your fault. Like it's complicated. It's more complicated mm-hmm. than we should often be asking people to deal with as individuals. Like we need better mm-hmm. systems and we need a better market for used plastic so that Mm -hmm. they're accepting more types of it at these different recycling Mm -hmm. places. Because so what you're saying in in the case of recycling, which I suspect is true in some way for most of our, you know, environmental advice, the kind of things we've gotten from public messaging campaigns. So we should recycle. We should, uh, you know, we should sort of have a water diet in our home. So, you know, not keep the water running, that we should be attuned to what kind of car we buy, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, all of those sorts of decisions. There is a systematic part of that Mm -hmm. process, those individual choices. How do we find out what we should be pushing for, like systematically, what are the big things that are happening right now that people should say, all right, if I don't know anything else, if I go in and I vote on this issue or I raise this point, Mm -hmm. it will contribute to the conversation. That's a perfectly framed question. And I think the challenge is like that we need both, right? We need this individual action and we need the systems level changes because everything you described from like what car do you drive to how much water Mm -hmm. you use to what you eat to how you recycle and otherwise deal with waste or compost or whatever it is you're doing collectively, that makes a big difference. The thing that I find really helpful for putting climate solutions in perspective is to separate them into a few different categories. So we know that electricity is about 25% of carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. We know that transportation is another 20-25%. We know that agriculture and land use is another big one. Buildings and manufacturing is another big one. And those are the four major categories. And so if you think about like, what can you do within each of those categories, it starts to become a little bit more clear, right? Mm -hmm. We need to be advocating for 
zero emissions transportation options. It takes a lot of energy to make a whole bunch of cars too. Like we don't need everyone mm-hmm. just going out and buying a new car. We need to sort of shift away from this individual car centric model entirely, mm-hmm. which is a lot harder. <laughs> yes, it is. As someone who just bought an electric car and like there's no way to get to my mom's house without an individual car. Like this is a big country. Without right? a car. That's right. And then there's where do you have power as an individual? Mm-hmm. And I think the overwhelm comes from, I don't know if it's like guilt or whatever, like this perception that we need to solve all of it, which is literally yes. impossible. Yeah. And is that if you aren't solving all of it, why solve a little bit of it? It almost feels like if I don't do something big enough, yeah. why do something small? Because there's a lot of people is the answer, yeah. right? And right. every tenth of a degree matters. Mm-hmm. While we need transformation, to address the climate crisis, like that happens in steps and that happens with mm-hmm. what each of us contribute as individuals. And so I like to think of what I have to offer. I think of, okay, mm-hmm. how can I use the power of my voice, my vote, my dollars, my network, right? All these things that I have access to, what's the best use of me in particular? Okay. And one way that I've come to see it that I think is really a helpful exercise for everyone who's trying to figure out their Mm -hmm. role in this is to map out a Venn diagram with three overlapping Mm -hmm. circles. And if the first one is, what are you good at? Okay. What are you bringing to the table? Are you an amazing journalist or a lawyer or a web developer or an artist or a doctor or a plumber? Like, what are you good at? Mm-hmm. What you got? Do you throw really great parties? Do you make things cool on the internet? Like yeah. literally, we need all of it. Mm-hmm. And then what is the problem you want to work on, right? Because there's a huge okay. list of things need to change. And it really is much more effective if we just pick something. <laughs> that seems important. Pick you something. Pick something. And so for me, one of my main things is as a marine biologist, I try to connect those dots between ocean and climate science and policy. Mm-hmm. So thinking about, you know, offshore wind energy and regenerative farming in the ocean and protecting coastal ecosystems as climate solutions, like that's my jam. Mm-hmm. So that's what's in my other circle. And then the third one is what brings you joy. Yeah. What gets you out of bed in the morning? What do you love doing? Uh, do you love talking into microphones? Maybe that could be useful, right? Mm-hmm. Because... This is the work of our lifetimes. Like, this is not going to end. Exactly. People often also feel very alone in this. Mm -hmm. Like, if you're sitting in your house, like, compost? Like, what? But if it's like your neighborhood is doing a thing, you know, Mm -hmm. then it's very different. Or if you are doing a beach cleanup with a chapter of... Surfrider Foundation, mm-hmm. or if you are joining a chapter of 350.org or the Sierra Club or Sunrise Movement, and you're like lobbying your senators and Congress people together, right? Mm-hmm. Because if your senator gets like 10, 15, 20 letters on any topic, they will be asking their staff, right. what is this about? Yep. What is my position on this? Like, are we doing enough? My constituents are concerned. Mm-hmm. And yep. I think we overestimate like how many people it takes to speak up. And so I think underestimate so too. our power. Yeah. Politically, especially, it's such mm-hmm. a good point. In my experience, the same thing. I, I have friends who are a, you know, a constituent manager for elected mm-hmm. and they say the same thing. If I get five phone calls, I'm hauling my ass down to do research because yep. I'm going to need to write a brief. I know in 24 hours, right? Yep. Like it does not take a big petition 
When I look out across the conversation about what's happening, which is that this has come first and most for Black and brown communities, both in the United States and across the world. It is already marginalized communities, already under-resourced communities or you know, historically disadvantaged because of all the terrible laws and policies and greed and whatever in this country that are most at risk when it comes to sea level. I mean, think of Hurricane Katrina. Think of Mm -hmm. um, Hurricane Maria. Think of Hurricane Sandy, right? Like who got Mm -hmm. screwed? Like who really Mm -hmm. was the most at risk? In New York City, they built a lot of public housing in flood zones Mm -hmm. and put poor people at greater risk. Put that up against who are the biggest voices Mm -hmm. in the discourse about climate, (laughs) and there's a mismatch. Yourself being an exception to that, both a woman and a woman of color who is talking about climate in the public way, anyway, talking to the public about it. Why do we still think of climate scientists as being so, so white and so masculine and that being a debate when the reality of how it's happening on the ground looks like what it looks like? And what does that do for how we understand Mm. the risk of climate change? Mm. I think we're at an inflection point with who we look to and trust. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think people are looking for new voices right now and people who they can relate to. And Mm -hmm. there is a whole new generation of women, people of color, women of color leading on climate. Mm -hmm. But you are right to say that the, you know, there is a paradigm that needs shifting, Mm -hmm. right? Having a small handful of white men determine climate discourse for an entire country of hundreds of millions of people Mm -hmm. um, is a recipe for failure because what we need as we sort of describe that everything needs to change, right? If we need Mm -hmm. to change all of our systems in every place, we need leaders in every place with expertise in every field. Mm -hmm. And so what Dr. Catherine Wilkinson and I thought of as our response to this need was Mm -hmm. to curate this anthology of essays by women climate leaders. So that's called All We Can Save and Mm -hmm. the subtitle is truth, courage, and solutions for the climate crisis. It's not like 500 facts that will scare the shit out of you and make you want to like go crawl back in your cave and Google Uh cat videos, right? Like that is not the subtitle. And showing just the full spectrum of expertise and approaches that are useful. I mean, this was supposed to be a 20 essay anthology. And Mm -hmm. we were like, nope, that's not actually enough perspectives given Mm -hmm. the scope of the challenge that we face. We need to include farmers and lawyers and activists and journalists and artists and models and CEOs Mm -hmm. and financial advisors and poets, like all of it. We need Mm -hmm. to have like a really holistic view to show people how many different ways there are to contribute to solutions. And so, you know, it was supposed to be 20 essays and it's like 41. (laughs) No, that's amazing. How do you hope people will use that book? I think of each of the essays as a door Mm -hmm. you can walk through and see a different element of this work. You can see what it is like to be an indigenous leader fighting against pipelines oil Mm -hmm. and gas pipelines in Minnesota. You can see what it is like to be the president of Earth Justice and Mm -hmm. fighting within the legal system to like 
get the bad guys. Like there are mm-hmm. actually bad guys. You can see what it's like to be a youth climate activist who's like 15 years old and trying to like rattle grownups into doing something. Yeah. And I think that's really useful because we have been shown this monolith of white men scientists mm-hmm. or white men nonprofit executives having mm-hmm. all the answers or maybe politicians here and there. And that is just not going to work mm-hmm. because no one has all the answers. Right. We need the full diversity of humanity putting their expertise towards solving mm-hmm. this challenge. And so what we were hoping with the book was to show, A, like, if you couldn't find women or women of color, like you clearly were Let's not looking. Let's get rid of that excuse. Exactly. So that's on you. And then to say, like, welcome. Like, look at all these ways that there are to be a part of these solutions. Like, there is a place for you in this work. And I think Mm -hmm. so many people have not felt like they were welcome Mm -hmm. because of the ways in which the climate crisis has been presented or Mm -hmm. in many cases not presented. So you mentioned the news media Mm -hmm. being like abhorrently silent on this. And in 2020... On the like morning news, nightly news, right. Sunday shows, there were 107,000 minutes of broadcast coverage. Mm-hmm. Of that 107,000, there were only 380 minutes or 0.4%. I was about to say that's less than a half percent. Yeah. Yep. 0.4% of the time was their coverage on climate. So mm. if you missed it, it's because you blinked. Right. right. Like it's basically not there. And it's not in popular culture in the way that it needs to be. It's no, not- it isn't. That's a great point. Yeah. It's not in our sitcoms and in our serials. Yeah. Like there's no law and order climate justice. Dun, 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 you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm here for that. There are some people I would like to take to court on climate injustices. Right. That actually, listen, they're running out of ideas over you there. Heard they it should here thank first. us. That's yeah. exactly right. But you're right. It is also very much missing from our popular discourse. And I think while it's nice to have shows that are focused on climate, I think more valuable than having like another documentary is to just have it be the context Mm -hmm. of a rom-com, right? Mm -hmm. Like, because this is the world we live in. And if we just, we're just ignoring the context within which all of our decisions play out. Like, where do I live? What what do I want to study in college? Like, Mm -hmm. who's the best partner for the climate apocalypse, right? Like, I was just going to say, I the minute you said that, I was imagining, like, <laughs> once you realized, like, the climate apocalypse was coming and you had to, like, go on Tinder that night, like, how it would change. Tressie, I literally have this in my dating profile. Stop it. <laughs> it says, hopefully you have some skills useful for See, the climate that's apocalypse. the kind of shift we need to have happen. Because until it happens on Tinder, it hasn't reached the heart of society. <laughs> There you go. I love it. I also swipe left on people holding single-use plastic. Yeah, now see, and that's what I mean about public messaging, yep. to be fair. I want people who will say, listen, you're dating somebody? Like, oh, I would never date somebody who's driving a Humvee. <laughs> like, right? Like, what that, like, that should be the level of the discourse because it is that fundamental, right? I think it, we have to just br- bring a lot more consistency to things. Um, in terms of just like, hey, like this is mm-hmm. the air we breathe. This is the world we live in. We can't ignore the context anymore. Mm-hmm. And I do think to bring it back to what you said at the beginning, like we need new language or we need to shift yeah. which language we use because so many 
of the metaphors we use when we talk about climate are war mm-hmm. metaphors, right? We're going to fight climate change. Exactly. We're going to defeat climate change. We're going to like battle yeah. the atmosphere. Like it doesn't really mm-hmm. make sense, right? When mm-hmm. we need to heal nature and we need mm-hmm. to think about sort of emergent solutions and who are the leaders that we need for this moment. And we need to think about collaboration and cooperation as opposed to competition. So we mm-hmm. coined this term for the work we're trying to nurture, which is the feminist mm-hmm. climate renaissance. Yeah, I love that. Because what you are talking about is a feminist ethic of like global care. Yeah. I mean, we can't solve the climate crisis without women, right? We're going to need mm-hmm. that half of the brain power on the planet and ingenuity yep. and creativity and wisdom. And we also need this to be about rebirth. I think of Renaissance mm-hmm. as an artistic period, obviously, but also like there's birth in the French root of that word, right? Mm-hmm. And that that is more the vibe that I'm going for. <laughs> Yeah. Like gender equality and like recreation as opposed to mm-hmm. fighting against something. Instead of fighting mm-hmm. the past, it's about like creating the future. That is absolutely the feminist part of the social psyche, the reproductive part, mm-hmm. the care, the future looking instead of the sort of, um, you know, wars. Wars are about vengeance. Uh, and building things is about a future. And that is just to me so fundamentally a feminist ethic. And feminists have cared about the environment for a very long time. I would say forever, probably. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that is, it's a really actually old conversation mm-hmm. for people who don't like feminist politics and feminist theory and feminist work. It really is. We found that there are these four sort of characteristics of feminist mm-hmm. climate leadership that Of course, anyone of any gender can embody, but we're seeing it in Mm -hmm. droves in the women who are leading, that there's a clear focus on making change instead Mm -hmm. of just being in charge, right? It's not so much ego and competition driven. Also, that there's a commitment to responding in ways that heal injustices as opposed to deepen them. That there's this appreciation for heart-centered as well as head-centered leadership, yeah. There's so much intuition that we need here. And there's so much of this like fear and grief and rage that we need to like acknowledge and process, process and label. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the last one is that building community is absolutely required for building a better world. Mm-hmm. Like we can't all build this alone. We can't all have our bunkers in New Zealand. We mm-hmm. can't all go to Mars. Like we need to do this here together <laughs> on this planet. <laughs> yeah. Because that is that is the capitalist uh, solution right now, right? It seems like all of yeah. the you know the captains of industry it is to colonize other planets. Yeah. So that seems to be more colonialism for the ravages of the colonialism done. It here. is funny how universal that approach is among tech billionaires. I'm like, all of you, yes, <laughs> same yeah. thing. They, <laughs> yes, well, they, it's I, <laughs> I have this joke about like a newsletter must go out every morning to every tech bro in the world. They are remarkable lockstep kind of people. Like, you know, it was the sneakers one week, they all were wearing the same sneakers. And then like the next week is they're, they're all going to go to Mars. And then like the week after that, they're all biohacking, you know, they're all, do- it is a weird, it's a very weird, cohesive culture. There's also this obsession with living forever. Yeah. I would think that if you want to live forever, you would want to take better mm-hmm. care of the planet you will be living on. Um, and I wish point. that those two things were more deeply intertwined for folks. 
you know, the conversation for me on climate change almost feels like a little evolutionary burst, like we'll be really bad at it or silence for a really long time. But then there's like this sort of evolutionary leap in the discourse. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that the way regular people are for the first time talking about the Green New Deal yeah. feels like a moment. What do you think of the Green New Deal and its impact? It's major. Mm-hmm. I mean, shout out to the youth climate movement for just stopping us all in our tracks and saying like, grownups, yo, are you are you kidding me? Seriously, who put that on the table? It's just been so powerful because of the moral clarity that young people bring to this conversation. The, the ability mm -hmm. to say, are you kidding me? Yeah. The ability to say, like, this is my future you're gambling with. Mm -hmm. Do you not care about your children and grandchildren? Like, you owe this to future generations to turn this around. And it turns out that children, especially girls, mm -hmm. if you are a conservative man who is a climate denier, mm -hmm. the greatest chance of having your mind changed is by your adolescent daughter daughter yeah you want to be a that. good dad you you do care about her and her future right and i'm just so in awe of all the young people who are finding their voices and using them so powerfully and in the case of the green new deal it's an organization called a sunrise movement that really led the popularization of that work they staged a protest in nancy pelosi's office. Mm -hmm. They invited AOC and she showed up before she was even sworn in. So she was taking a huge yeah. political risk. risk. And they were just like, we need green jobs and a livable future. Like that is what we need from and Congress. It's so eloquent. That's so eloquent. Green jobs and a livable future. They nailed it. I mean, yeah, the Green New Deal perfectly captured it with, you know, the history of the New Deal in America and the mm -hmm. U.S. government really like investing in society in a major way. Of course, you know, people of color were, were not really benefiting from the original New of Deal. Course. So we need to get that yep. right this time around. Mm -hmm. um, As I'd say, which I will I give them so much credit for, for that very clear focus mm -hmm. on racial injustice and equality. Yep. Like they're understanding that, yes, we also course correct yep. uh, the New Deal here, that it has to happen first and most like in black and brown communities across the country. And I think that's one of the reasons why it is just a really eloquent sort of framing that also shows how much they've done. They've just done their work. They've done their homework. The founders of Sunrise Movement actually spent a year reading about other movements before they launched anything. <sighs> I wish everybody would do that. Tell me about it. I wish I had done that. That's like, amazing. Same. Go read same. like 80 books and come back and have something yeah. more useful to say. <laughs> That's right. And I think, you know, that is part of the benefit of young people in the movement. We now have a three generations deep movement, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm sort of in the middle of it. So it's an interesting vantage point for which to see like these older scientists and environmental mm -hmm. leaders who've been doing this forever, including like plenty of black folks and indigenous folks, That's Latinx right. folks yeah. who have not gotten the resources or the platforms, but have always been doing the work mm -hmm. and who quantitatively care more about climate. When mm -hmm. you poll Americans, it's 49% of white Americans who are concerned about climate compared to 57% of black Americans and 70% of Latinx Americans. Mm. So people think like people of color don't care as much. It's like, nope, that's actually so not true. quantitatively right. incorrect per polling from Yale and George Mason universities. I love that stat. It's just that there are all these other issues, right, that people of color also have to deal with. So it's not often like your number one priority because there's, you know, mm -hmm. your daily 
concerns have to take precedence. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Green New Deal, I would say, for anyone who's curious, like what it actually is, mm-hmm. you can read it. It's in very plain English, and it's 14 pages. And it's double-spaced, mm-hmm. and the font's pretty yeah. big. So it would take you like 10 minutes to read it. And then I think we could, as a country, have a more nuanced and grounded discussion about what we do and do not want to do in terms of climate policy. Because there are mm-hmm. reasonable discussions to be had about like how exactly do we address this crisis? The do we or do we not address it? That conversation is not one I'm having. Um, But like, what exactly do we do on all of these different fronts on, Mm -hmm. you know, energy and transportation and agriculture and land use and buildings and manufacturing? Like, there's a lot to be figured out there. And how do we support each other in this transition as coal mining jobs are going, you know, have been Mm -hmm. disappearing for many years now, um, as new jobs come online with completely different skills, like repairing wind turbines is just a different skill Mm -hmm. set. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Than building a car in Detroit. And we got it. And I think it's natural for people to be resistant. Sometimes what we think about is people's resistance to accepting climate change is really a really fundamental, you know, they just don't believe they can be retrained, that we'll invest in them, Mm -hmm. that there'll be a social safety net for them as this massive change happens. Um, And that sometimes we really should give each other some grace. It's reasonable to see your job disappearing and to be terrified and to go, well, you know, your wind turbine didn't solve my problem of not having a paycheck next week. Absolutely. Yeah. And this need for what's called a just transition is mm-hmm. paramount. And we don't right now really have very many examples of what that looks like when it's done right on any sort of significant scale. Mm. I absolutely empathize with the mindset that this level of transformation to address climate mm-hmm. change, the fear that people would be left behind, that their way That's of right. life, that their community, that there is not a place for them in this future. In the new world, yeah. And that's a choice. Whether or not there is a place for everyone as we transform is a choice. Mm -hmm. And that that is a role for policy. That is a role for community organizations. You know, obviously corporations have a role to play as well. And like figuring out how we can make sure that as people are switching jobs, they have health care, right? If you're switching whole mm-hmm. sectors, like that's scary. People that's are going right. to have to move, right? Um, mm-hmm. Out of harm's way of these climate increasingly unnatural disasters. And so we just need to think about the world as being like much more dynamic than it's ever been, uh, as our economy is being much more dynamic. Like a lot of change is happening and humans are not that good at change as you not kind of good are at it. getting yeah, at. That's like, right. That's right. It's scary yeah. and we would rather just, you know, pretend that we can mm-hmm. just keep going like we're going. But we can't. And we can't. That is our takeaway from your amazing work, both alone and with your colleagues. I believe you told us the paperback edition yep. of the book is forthcoming, right? July 20th. All right. Amazing. That seems to me like a really good place to start. We started this conversation with me asking you, it's overwhelming. It is a lot. Even if you believe that this is the defining problem for humanity right Mm -hmm. now in our everyday life, it can feel so overwhelming. And I feel like you gave us two really good things to do, which is to find our place. Yeah. And your book can help us do that. And to read the Green New Deal, which you have promised us. It's, it's just, just like a few basically pages. eight pages. Of yeah. The, yeah. It's just, you put it on your Kindle and you're going to read it later and we will 
have the basis for having a smarter conversation. And if you're looking for some suggestions on actions that you can take at the end of every episode Mm -hmm. of How to Save a Planet. We recommend actions in the show notes, and we have a link Mm -hmm. to this um, archive of all the calls to action. So if you're looking for some inspiration on where to start, that's a good place, too. That's an amazing resource. Solutions. Just focus on solutions. Solutions. We'll even feel better, I think, if we do that. Oh, absolutely. We got one more question for you. Yeah. That we like to ask all of our women guests, certainly on the okay. show, but absolutely all of the black women and women of color on the show. And that is, how can we help you do you? Ooh. The show, Roxanne and I, our listeners, how can we help you do you? I think that you and Roxanne can help by talking about climate more, by weaving that into mm-hmm. the work that you do as just the context within which all sorts of other dramas and injustices mm-hmm. and social issues play out. Like all of it is intertwined right now. And your eloquent and powerful voices can help people understand how the pieces fit together and, and, and how they might contribute. So talk about it. So we know that it's real. Yeah, absolutely. We can definitely do that. And I felt very called to do that, by the way, and even in the creative work, as much as in like my empirical work, the creative work seems to be where we, uh, really have a real a real opportunity to like show people that we can live every day knowing the crisis is overhanging but still fall in love still you know party still you know have a day off but we can do both but swipe left on the people with the gas guzzlers but and the definitely whatever swipe left on the dude <laughs> holding a case of plastic water bottles and driving a humvee that is actually i take that it back that's dude. the real takeaway that's the real takeaway <laughs> thank you so very much i for joining us and for your amazing work. Thanks. Thank you, Tracy. We're going to put in the show notes a link to the Green New Deal mm-hmm. and to the book Ayanna Johnson co-edited, All We Can Save, Truth, Courage, and Solutions for the Climate Crisis, which is going to be out in paperback on July 20th. Yep. After I spoke with uh, Dr. Johnson, Roxanne and I put out a call on social media. We wanted to know how was climate change affecting your lives? And listen, we got an outpouring of messages and people who didn't follow the instructions, by the way, who sent I me mean, DMs. Right, girl. And like, I was like, baby, we told you how to do the thing. But a lot of these people who <laughs> did get to us the right way were people living on the West Coast. No big surprise there. Mm. Let's start with this voice memo. Hey, Roxanne and Tressie. This is Sarah from Portland, Oregon. When I saw your question come across the timeline, I was like, huh? This is so relevant for me right now, coming off of two days of 116 degree heat. I had luckily just already decided that I cannot risk it any longer. I'm moving back to the Midwest. Um, It is crazy here. It has been a hell of a year to really underscore climate change is real. I mean, forget the pandemic. (laughs) We had wildfires, burned down people's homes. People died. People lost everything. I'll definitely be moving, definitely making different life choices because of climate change. I would only stay for hopes that maybe one day the rock would rescue me on a speedboat uh, coming from like some skyscraper <laughs> somewhere, but it's real. You know, it's amazing what people in the Pacific Northwest were dealing with because normally it doesn't really get above 70 degrees That's there. Right. It's an, That's right. it's like more than temperate. It's a very mild climate. And to suddenly 
have to cope with temperatures in the hundreds without air conditioning most of the time. Mm-hmm. It was really kind of harrowing. Um, anytime you have that sort of rapid change, yeah, it's very dangerous, especially for like our unhoused population, for children, uh, for animals, for sick elderly, uh, disabled people, all of that infrastructure at the edges really starts to break down. So shouts out to the Pacific Northwest who had been struggling with that and lots of places all over the country dealing with intemperate weather right now. Um, Beth Morgan lives in California and had this to say about the wildfires that have plagued her city. She writes, get an air purifier, get some real good masks, get some way of exercising indoors and expect that two to three months of the year, it will smell like smoke. And you'll need to check the air quality before you go for a walk or a run. Mm. It's pretty clear that this will slowly expand to three to four months and then four to five months. It makes living here far less attractive. But where will we go? Into the vast swath of the country that's a hurricane zone, into the regions where blizzards mm-hmm. and deep freezes are also now common, into Tornado Alley. The world feels like it's trying to shake us off, and we don't seem super intent on doing anything to stop it. Mm-hmm. You know, Beth, you're right. Yeah. There's nowhere to go. Yeah, Beth uh, really hones in on something, by the way, that has been true for other places all across the world for a very long time. Climate change forces migration, y'all. So, you know, when you hear about things like the crisis at the border, whichever border you're talking about, the border in Syria, the border south of here, right? All borders, all borders are about trying to control uh, migration of people from one place to another. When you think about like our narrative around how we were going to fight the war in the Middle East, right? Uh, we just recently pulled uh, most of our troops out of Afghanistan, by the way. All of those things that ended up in like global warfare and conflict and armed conflict were really a consequence of global change. It was about poor people who could no longer farm their little plots of land, uh, who had relied on it for subsistence. That's been true everywhere else. And they sounded much like Beth sounds right now in California. Where are you supposed to go? Mm-hmm. Where do you go when you're, you've been burned out of your home? You can't grow the food. You can't rely on and trust uh, the infrastructure. We not only should have been better prepared for this, we saw this happening everywhere else. And we just decided that we would be America and just get out ahead of it by being great. But as you can see from Beth, this is how it starts to impact your life. Not only does it make it uh, unlivable where you are, but it makes it unlivable everywhere else you might go. And it's not only on the coasts that people are experiencing issues, Mm -hmm. but Maria in Virginia has been making a lot of personal changes in her life. She and her partner recently bought an electric car. They cook exclusively vegetarian or pescatarian. And she writes in one simple sentence, Mm. we decided not to have children. Mm. I'm hearing that a lot more, Tressie. And oh, yeah. it always gives me pause as someone who, you know, I would have loved to have children. Uh, but, you know, when you decide it's not safe to have children because yep. we don't know what planet there will be for them in 10, 20 years, mm-hmm. that, that's chilling. Yep. The feminists told us that if we did not pay attention mm-hmm. to the earth, that it would undermine our ability to reproduce ourselves. They told us. It's almost like intersectionality is a thing. I know. I know. If only somebody had written some book or had some sort of theory or idea about that. Curdy in New Jersey already has children. Thank you, Curdy. We need the people. Mm-hmm. Mentally, she writes, the climate crisis leaves me devastated, furious, and exhausted. I feel like I should be teaching my kids how to forage and orient themselves in a forest rather than worry about school grades, careers. 
She also writes that climate change has compelled me to become an activist. I think that's true for a lot of us. Mm -hmm. To join my local green team, approach local and state politicians in uncomfortable ways. Thanks for that, Curdy. I love that she is just like rolling her sleeves up and is like, Mm -hmm. you know what? I'm going to be a thorn in these politicians' sides. And I think that's a healthy way to go about it. Absolutely. One of the things that Ayana brought up was that we needed to do more of that. And that's why she strongly encouraged all of us to read The Green New Deal, which, as you mentioned, Roxanne, we're going to drop in the show notes. She told us it was short and punchy and there's no excuse. Mm -hmm. But I think it will help us do some of what Curtis is talking about, which is learn how to raise hell. Because you need Mm -hmm. the right words. You need to know what to ask for when you go raise uh, the hell. So thank you for that, Curtis, seriously. And thanks to everyone who wrote in or sent us a voice memo and who Follow the instructions. And that is our show for this week. If you don't already, please follow us and tell us what you think of this show and what you want us to talk about, either on Twitter or Instagram or Gmail at H-E-A-R to Slay. From Luminary, Here to Slay is executive produced by us, Roxanne Gay and Tressie McMillan Cottom. Our senior producer is Curtis Fox. Our producer is Catherine Finaloza. And our associate producers are Allie McPherson and Asoti Samuel. Production support from Lauren Garcia and Caitlin Adams. I mean, Curtis has a pretty good radio voice for the producer. Yes, he does. <laughs> <laughs> Although we try not to tell him such things, Ayana. It ruins, Sorry, it ruins the really, whole balance of power I'm around really here. It. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.